start by saying, as I always do, I thank all of you guys for coming along and joining us on this lovely Monday morning. Uh, we are continuing our reading as the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective of Deleuze and Guattari's Anti-Oedipus. We are in the Sisyphean task of getting through section uh, 4.3, uh, which is we've we're now at page 308. If you're reading along, uh, we're in the second paragraph of 308. Uh, we're going to have very very light sort of announcements to start this off. Uh, first off, as always, if you have are reading this and you want to take place more in the server and get more involved, we are always looking for moderators, people to run talks, people to help us run things, people to. Do random stuff. Uh, we're trying to get our uh, zine off the ground, uh, website maybe. We're trying to figure out what the format is. Is that fair, Jack, everyone? Is that a decent sort of summation? We're having a nightmare of a time getting that going. Yeah, that's about on par. It's a, a semblance of tasks right now. Yes. Uh, so any help on any of those fronts would be great. Uh, please take a look at the uh, calendar that we have running uh, in the top section of our Discord for all of our other talks. Uh, Zizek, Heidegger, our Simonden group meets, our literature groups meeting. Uh, we have a lot going on. I think we still have a lot of we have a Bergson group. We have a Bergson group now. That's right, uh, because I'm obviously stemming from this reading, um, but it's it's fantastic. So between here and our sister servers over at uh, Continental Philosophy, Kent, thank you. Uh, we've got just too damn much, uh, but uh, we're going to sort of parse that down and make it easy because today we are only doing anti-edifice. Uh, so my goal today is to do the same as we've been doing, uh, reading, commenting, and as we near that two hour mark, we will stop and we will continue tomorrow. Uh, so we are continuing uh, in my PDF. Uh, it is page 331 of the PDF, 308 on the book itself, page 308 of the book itself. Uh, we're continuing from. <laughs> the path marked out by Lacan led in a completely different direction. He's not content to turn like the analytic squirrel inside the wheel of the imaginary and the symbolic. He refuses to be caught up in the Oedipal imaginary and the Oedipalizing structure, the imaginary identity of persons and the structural unity of machines, everywhere knocking against the impasses of a molar representation that the family closes round itself. What is the use of going from the imaginary dual order to the symbolic third or fourth if the latter is bi-univocalizing, whereas the first is bi-univocalized? As partial objects, the desiring machines undergo two totalizations, one when the socius confers on them a structural unity under a symbolic signifier acting as absence and lack in an aggregate of departure, the other when the family imposes on them a personal unity with imaginary signifieds that distribute, that vacualize, lack in an aggregate of destination a double abduction of the orphan machines inasmuch as the structure applies to articulation and its articulation to them and as much as the parents lay their fingers on them to trace back from images to the structure would have little significance and would not rescue us from representation if the structure did not have a reverse side that is like the real production of desire Jesus Christ, why do I always start like this? <laughs> so, 
so so to start like this just to remember that uh, the context is uh, the description of psychoanalysis in Freudian terms and now Lacan is trying to uh, get out of this and like switch it around it's essentially being a sort of a, a longer version of they've talked about a few times that Lacan being this revolutionary psychoanalyst but ultimately serving the same gods kind of thing that they've they've said a few times yeah, I like the way they say it in 311, where um, Lacan is like the story of the uh, the revolutionaries who want to blow up the pylon, so they place the charges perfectly, blow the pylon up, it flies in the air, and then it falls right back into the same damn hole. <laughs> I'm not in a place to super break down some Lacanian thought on all of this, but essentially that's the summation of this paragraph. If anyone has any other uh, notes, that would be great. The reverse side is the real in organization of the molecular elements. Partial objects that enter into indirect syntheses or interactions, since they are not partial in the sense of extensive parts, but rather partial, like the intensities under which a unit of matter always fills space in varying degrees, the eye, the mouth, the anus, as degrees of matter. Pure positive multiplicities where everything is possible, without exclusiveness or negation. Syntheses operating without a plan, where the connections are transverse, the disjunctions included, the conjunctions polyvocal, indifferent to their underlying support. Since this matter that serves them precisely as a support receives no specificity from any structural or personal unity, but appears as the body without organs that fills the space each time an intensity fills it. Signs of desire that compose a signifying chain, but that are not themselves signifying, and do not answer to the rules of a linguistic game of chess, but instead to the lottery drawings that sometimes cause a word to be chosen, sometimes a design, sometimes a thing or a piece of a thing, depending on one another only by the order of the random drawings, and holding together only by the absence of a link, non-localizable connections, having no other statutory condition than that of being dispersed elements of desiring machines that are themselves dispersed. It is this entire reverse side of the structure that Lacan discovers with the little o as machine and the big O as non-human sex. Schizophrenizing the analytic field instead of oedipalizing the psychotic field. Um, there are a, a, a couple of footnotes that are worth reading through here, especially on uh, the sentence uh, to say it again, partial objects that enter into indirect syntheses or interactions, since they are not partial in the sense of extensive parts, but rather partial, like intensities. Uh, partial, uh, the the translator's notes, and I'm sure Roger will have a comment here. Partial. Um, partial. And then the other one is partial. Yep. So to be, uh, well, I'll, I'll let you go. It's the fun part of the French language is the very, very, very tiny things that change words. But to read it really quick, partial, incomplete, partial, partial biased as a biased judge. Uh, in English, we would uh, say this as one is partial in the sense of being sort of a divided sub divided piece uh, that's a partial piece of something. Or someone is, well, I'm partial to PC gaming over Xbox. Uh, 
that's their, their sort of fun wordplay they're doing here. We have chosen to translate objet partiel through the partial objects rather than as part objects, as Melanie Klein would. In anticipation of this point in the book, where Deleuze and Guattari shift from Klein's concept of the partial object as part of, hence as an incomplete part of a lost unity, uh, a partial piece of a house, a partial etc., et toward a concept of partial objects as biased, evaluating intensities that know no lack and are capable of selecting organs, molecular. Uh, that note's from the translator. Uh, do you want to go into that a little bit for us, Roger, and talk through the differences? Um, well, it's it refers... I, I, I don't know for the rest of Antiedipus, but, you know, in their ontologies, the, um, the non-human is acting, in a, in a certain way, so if if it's a partial object in the sense that the 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 object has either a bias or um, a mean to act or plays a role into the greater assemblage, it's it's not something that is neutral out there. It's something that is in here and it is acting. So when we talk about partial objects, they're not uh, they're not just inanimate things that we act upon. They the act backed, so that's that. That would be uh, the way to understand it. Well, and they also, um, with that, they also become in the translator's words uh, biased, uh, and the the concept of them being partial objects versus a part of an object, which is how I always took partial, is an interesting sort of translator sort of play. Yeah, and it looks like it looks like part of that play is. Uh, with the the distinction between the molar and the molecular, right? Because when they're partial, is in pieces of, it's that molar totality, as the uh, the, the translator suggests. But when they're when they're partial, is in they refer, as in they're um, partial to, I don't know, to some intensity. Then we're we're talking more directly about the molecular. A lot more time for me again. I like that. Sure. So based on the translator's note, part of the reason Deleuze and Guadri are doing this wordplay um, is that when we're talking about partial objects in the sort of fragmentary sense, or like they're, they're pieces of something, that's in the molar sense, they're pieces of a totality. Uh, but in the molecular sense, when we're talking about partial objects as though they're biased toward an intensity, right? So like what Roger's talking about how they act back. Now we're talking about partial objects in the more molecular sense. And that, that's the thing that we see in, um, in social sciences, but also in philosophy. Uh, when we talk about a bias, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's the subject that has a bias. So basically when we're talking about objects as having bias, there's a part of, you know, we can see it in, in one way as a part of subjectivity within the object or to actually give affect, you know, as an underlying uh, property of all things. So there's two ways to see this. As an anthropomorphic way, seeing the non-human or the, the component of a system to be uh, able to act out of their own, I would say, volition, but like that's a little bit too far. Or to say that Parts of the worlds are just acting; they're affecting us. So, like, there's there's a part of um, there's a part of animacy to things, 
and uh, that led us to like you know actor network theory and all that kind of uh, theories that are moving from a dead world to uh, a vibrant world, as uh, Jane Bennett would say. Yeah, I really like this uh, connection to ANT and Bruno Latour with his uh, sociology of things and his parliament of things because for him uh, objects have uh, this agency as well uh, like you said and there is not this strict distinction between subject and object but rather uh, subject objects and um, object subjects um, in a very oscillating way yes well, one of the parts of uh of ANT, the, the node theory that Latour pushed out that I've always been attracted to is the idea that every part of a node is effectively a, a machine that has personality desires and biases that uh, incentivize certain processes in very certain ways. It's one of those things that uh, I'm, in America, we've been having a bit of an election recently that's kind of gone off the rails. But one of the things that's been really fascinating to watch are these things that are supposed to be like these sort of pure nodal objects that everyone talks about as being sort of objectively just how they are. But it's very clear how a lot of them sort of are coming out and they're, uh, they have their own biases, they have their own ways of operating that is just sort of the nature of the thing. And even if it is an inanimate object, uh, that's one of the Latour's big things is to be very aware that actually biases exist even at those even at those nodal moments. I really it's it's I really like that. Just to expand on that too, within the context of these last two paragraphs, this is kind of an important move they're making too, right? Because they're shifting. So they're shifting from talking about this in sort of like a structural sense, right? I think they said earlier in this chapter, right? It's a mistake to to confuse the structure with the production as though they're univocal, right? The, to say that structure is production is, you know, for, for them at least that seems to be a mistake. And that seems to be what we're reading into here where they say, right, if the structure did not have a reverse side, that is like the real production of desire, uh, then it would be really difficult to trace back from images to structure, right? So now that we're, we're on that flip side, we're talking about the so-called real and organization of these um, partial objects as they're at this molecular level. So, right, it's a nice way of flipping from structure into that, that more like sort of micro production. Well, and this is how they end in the discussion they're having around the con. Um, uh... I'm glad they've come back around on it to talk about sort of the things that are very positive about Lacan, but I, I want to go into just really quick because it's important I was asking about, and I'm sure other people are wondering too, the little O versus big O. Why didn't I just read it as O and O? Uh, there's very specific uh, uses for that in Lacanian uh, everything. One of the things, uh, the, the easy version of sort of describing what the little O and the big O are is to start with the idea of other. Uh, me as a subject, basically everything is immediately otherized, sort of the nature of how I perceive everything. Uh, the other comes in a, a lot of forms, but the sort of simplistic way of talking about it is the big other is that of, uh, we will talk about it as the uh, all-seeing eye that's kind of watching over us, and it can take the form of God, the law, the government, uh, tends to come from uh, the father in the Oedipal, 
uh, sort of setup. The father, the dad always knows when you're messing with the thermostat kind of mentality. That is a thing we exist with. We exist with this knowledge that we're being watched and seen. The little other is not actually an other. This is where the, the whole thing gets really fun. Uh, it's, it's much more, uh, the little other is essentially you, except not as you. They use the term here with the little O as the machine. That idea is really something that I think could almost be its own talk um, and its own discussion. I would, if anyone has any background in Lacan and would love to dive into their thoughts on it before I dive in, I would love to have just a quick moment about the idea of the little other being a machine and the big other being non-human sex. Uh, I may be the only Lacan person here, but I'd love if someone else did. Uh, you're not the only Lacanian, unfortunately. Yay. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm not exactly sure how to attempt on the big O as non-human sex, other than um, that there may be sexuality that's part of the, um, you know, that's underlying as of the driving, um, desiring machine. Um, when you're not having sex. But the little O, uh, based on what you said, I would just dovetail on that. It sounds like if if um, the little O is referring to uh, possibly the relation between the subject and the internal otherness that Lacan and his followers try to persuade and give structure and narrative around that is separate from the ego structure. So once the ego is moved away and the subject remains, it's either the little O is referring to the subject as, and in this case, as a machine, I think on, you know, on point or in line with the uh, zeitgeist here of the subject as a desiring machine, possibility of that, um, or on a more, yeah. Yeah. No. I. I. I to, to expand on that because the the idea is if if the little other is essentially how the subject sees themselves a projection of the ego that isn't actually a Cartesian classic subject, the idea is in Lacanian thought or has been uh, and the way a lot of people take that is that it's uh, uh, all I can think of always is uh, when George Costanza starts referring to himself as George, and everyone starts seeing George or having talking about George and George becomes himself uh, an object, a thing that exists and that people are able to discuss as, as a noun, kind of like if I were to say can of Pepsi that has quantifiable aspects. It has what I did. It, it becomes, uh, you know, as we were talking almost with Latour, it, that becomes a partial object. Uh, however, the really fun part of that is if we go and we use the other clever you know, turn of phrase with the idea of a partial object, then the O, the little O is actually a machine. Uh, my machine, my unconscious, my representation of myself, how I see myself, how I see myself uh, as a displaced third entity is actually something that is driving me, that is consuming desire, that is pushing me in different directions. Uh, the, the big O being non-human sex follows like, it, sorry, go ahead. No, I just really quickly, I could see that just to bracket that, put a spotlight on it. That's an interesting point around how uh, when George sees himself in a third person, 
um, that there is that uh, type of space that's created for the um, partialness to himself uh, rather than the partiality or the fragmentation that, that occurs in the other case. But here we have him being partial to a larval part of his subjectivity um, and able to kind of find its malleability or its mutability. He can shape it, uh, have a relation with it. Where I think, yeah, in the in the case of uh, uh, the psychoanalytic frame, I'm not sure if they can actually create such a um, plasticity that I think you know that micro case sort of talks about. That's just, so that's an interesting point where he's he's able to um, yeah, and by doing the third person thing. He is able to find his otherness um, without it being problematic. And so, when he says uh, the O, the big O, as non-human sex, uh, I wonder, Roger, in do you happen to have another translation there? Because that feels like I'd love to know if that's a direct translation or if they mean with the O, big, uh, the the big other as non-human sex. Uh, if there's a lot of ways to take that and it would almost be worth like give that would be a side discussion yeah give me a few minutes I'll try to find the text I haven't opened it yet no problem while he's uh, any... doing that um, yeah. just to make a brief point I I think to sort of try and push this toward like um, some concluding points I think one of the reasons they're getting at this point about Lacan and the, the, uh, the distinction of little O and big O here is that Right, so this is Lacan. Um, I, I think this is, appears to me at least to be a compliment that Lacan's able to go on the other, to, to look at this without the um, the lens of structure itself, right? So like when they say um, schizophrenizing the analytic feud, field instead of edipalizing the psychotic field, like I think what they're getting at here is Lacan's distinction with little o as machines that that seems to corroborate with Deleuze and Guattari's um, sense of like ontological um, production, but also, um, or at least desiring machines, but also with the big O, this seems to once again reiterate their point about um, not only like a, a de-anthropocentric um, conception of the, the libidinal and this, uh, the unconscious, but also in, in, in doing so, right, um, sexuality here is not conceived of in like terms of biological function right there i think in a general sense they're talking about sexuality as production and reproduction right so not in a biological sense but in the sense of machines connecting with one another in the sense of things being produced and reproduced thereby so i think our friend uh, jake uh, just summed it up so in, in French, it would be A, it's not O. A is before the other, like autre. So, object petit A, which would be A as a machine, and um, would be like the big A or object grand A would be sex, non-human, non-human sex. And it's, uh, it's what, what uh, Jacques referred to as uh, something that is, uh, you know, the, 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 the imaginary sex or you know how it how it functions outside of uh, of the real materiality 
Any last questions on? I think we've covered this paragraph very well now. And as you can know, there's no uh, reference to the text to uh, Parcio. You know, it's meant how it's meant into the text, so there's no footnote to that. I assume that translators' notes wouldn't be an edition that doesn't have translators. Yes. <laughs> so, just an but assumption. Just, but, but just for you imperialistic Americans, you know. <laughs> That's fair. Everything does revolve around us. Uh, I will continue on now. <clears throat> Everything hinges on the way in which the structure is elicited from the machines, according to planes of consistency or of structuration, and lines of selection that correspond to the large statistical aggregates or molar formations, and that determine the links and reduce production to representation. That is where the disjunctions become exclusive, and the connections global, and the conjunctions biunivocal. At the same time that the support gains a specificity under a structural unity, and the signs themselves become signifying under the action of a despotic symbol that totalitizes them in the name of its own absence or withdrawal. Yes, in fact, there the production of desire can be represented only in terms of an extrapolated sign that joins together all of the parts of production in a constellation of which it is not itself a part. There, the absence of a tie necessarily appears as an absence and no longer as a positive force. Can there, I stop you for a second? Yeah, why I'm, not? I'm really sorry. Um, just to go back to the first sentence. In French, uh, ça would be in italic. And so from should be in italic into this first sentence is elicited from the machines. So there's there's a there's a specific sense to from because you know it's it's emanating. It's something that is being cast out or you know emerging. So that, that I think that's important to to take to take account as we read the rest of the no, I agree. Well, so to, as a preview, because it's worth being able to see this through the lens, at this point, we're now discussing uh, how machines collectively become larger molar objects and how symbolism is, uh, representation is created inside of capital. Like that's what's happening. That's how structure is made. So we're talking about what makes a structure, what makes a system, what makes these larger molar things. So thank you for interrupting, Roger. Um, let me see, where the fuck do I even start now? Because um, I'll just jump back a little bit. Uh, yes, in fact, there the production of desire can be represented only in terms of an extrapolated sign that joins together all of the elements of production in a constellation of which it is not itself a part. There, the absence of a tie necessarily appears as an absence and no longer as a positive force. There, desire is necessarily referred to a missing term, whose very essence is to be lacking. The signs of desire, being non-signifying, become signifying in representation only in terms of a signifier of absence or lack. The structure is formed and appears only in terms of the symbolic term defined as a lack. The great other, as the non-human sex, gives way in representation to a signifier of the great other as an always missing term, the anti-human sex, the phallus of molar castration. Uh, to quote Lacan, I'm going to read the footnote here because it's basically part of the paragraph. Uh, directly from uh, Ikhritz. Uh, 
For want of this signifier, all the others would represent nothing. Serge Leclerc shows how the structure is organized around a missing term, or rather a signifier of lack. It is the elective signifier of the absence of a link, the phallus, that we find again in the unique privilege of its relation to the essence of lack, an emblem of difference par excellence. The irreducible difference, the difference between the sexes. If man can talk, this is because at one point in the language system, there is a guarantor of the irreducibility of lack, the phallic signifier. Well, and it's so I'm I'm slowly starting to come around on understanding how they view Lacan. I don't um, I, I don't want to make too many declaratory statements because I'm pretty sure at this point everything I say is going to be shown to be insane. But um, the ideas that they're kicking out there and how they're talking about them seems to be more or less that they're saying actually no, Lacan generally very right. The the difficulty is um, what what he was doing and how he was talking about things is actually what happens under capitalism, that this lack is created, the way that the symbolic order is created, the way that signs work, the way that little other and big other sort of operate. These are results of capitalism, not, not sort of uh, precursors to it, which is an interesting, I don't know, yeah, super interesting. Yeah. So I'm asking this question, the place of desire in Lacan and uh, you know, um, Deleuze and Guattari say desire, they see desire as positive, and I, I sense that, uh, or I think, or I feel, whatever, uh, in that paragraph that, you know, Lacan would be like a transitional moment in which desire is voided of its negative uh, aspect or the lack aspect, but it's being uh, portrayed as something that is neutral and empty. And I think this is a move from them for them to actually pass from Freud to Lacan to their own um, understanding of desire. I don't know if I'm wrong or right on this, but I feel this is the way they're doing their. No, it feels very much like they're trying to say they're trying to basically connect the dots for us of like, look, we start there. Here's how that works. This is terrible. Now Lacan comes along. He comes up, and they're very actually pretty complementary. Uh, as far as their writings of him finally are getting to, they're like, oh, this is this is good. Here's how this works. And uh, Lacanian lack is really different than Freudian uh, significantly. And it's uh, the, the core idea that lack is created sort of just by the nature of being a human being, a subject with agency uh, and inside of sort of these places and how you deal with things, the lack of the phallus, the lack of the breast, um, the the sort of growth that happens and then basically our lives are we have this pit inside of us and we're spending our lives trying to fill this black hole um and that sort of lack it's an interesting it's a it's a different take than freud for sure um well i would just add that there's speculation that uh because language comes into play in the child which is symbolic in the psychoanalytic field uh, we then end up depending on language for the uh, symbolic um, attributes to uh, to signify. So we may hear or see the lack uh, from the perspective of psychoanalysis having had that effect on the perceptive consciousness system. Um, and they talked about it in the previous paragraphs about you might be on a scene and somebody 
throws out a signifier and uh, you detect a lack. Um, and sort of there's the, uh, you know, a kind of the subject, a personalization of the symbolic, which um, intrinsically has uh, the letter or the sign has some sort of lack, um, uh, you know, uh, that's part of the part of the emergence of that. Anyway, I'm losing my um, the, the argument here, but I think also, yeah, I would agree. They're probably they're moving through Lacan. The end of Lacan is essentially as he goes through the topology is the machine. So the very end of Lacan. Lacan's last works, uh, he touches into the machine. And so they, um, uh, yeah, this whole thing is about, you know, moving beyond Lacan, essentially. It's interesting because Lack, um, just to go back to some things from very early in their writings, Lacan's definition of Lack is essentially uh, a kind of debt that is owed to the big other. Uh, there's a lot of ways. It, uh, a lot of things I'm going to say seem to be contradictory. Lacan is a very difficult person to read, so uh, it, these are things that are discussed. But uh, the way I've read Lacan is that lack is kind of this uh, eternal desire uh, within us that is uh, given to us because on the grand scheme of things, by the way that debt has been written into things, we are lacking and we need to constantly be filling that for the big other. It strikes me as being something, now that we're reading this and I'm sort of, as I'm reading this, um, it strikes me as very body without organsy about uh, how the bodies were uh, uh, recorded upon and that debt was something that was recorded because that's what lack is lack is debt to the law and the law being the symbolic father and that's very much basically Lacanian sort of set up so it's really interesting uh, because the father is who castrates you and because the father castrates you you always eternally have lack when faced with the law and that debt is something you're never able to replay, repay um, and if I'm, if I'm following here I think we can actually kind of bridge this chapter or this um, paragraph what you're saying um, in, in regards to the big other and uh, the relationship of fulfillment and lack because it looks like what they're getting at here too is how the structural unity kind of like Roger says like is lifted from the ontologies or uh, excuse me from like the the desire machines and that because they, they write um sorry I got to turn the page uh listed from the machines according to planes of consistency or of structuration and lines of selection that correspond to large statistical aggregates or molar formation and that determine the links and reduce production to representation. That is where the disjunctions become exclusive and the connections global and the conjunctions biunivocal. At the same time that the support gains a specific unity, excuse me, a, specific, a specificity under structural unity. And they go on to the despite uh, signifier there. But it sounds like um, what they're getting at here is the way that like a structural representation um, is sort of lifted out um, of what's going on at the molecular and perhaps even the molar level with a paranoiac investment um, 
that is effectively occurring from what I can gather by basically privileging a signifier um, amongst all the others, but by sort of like taking a, a signifier as sort of like transcendent and using that the presence of a transcendent transcendent signifier to affirm the the absence and thereby the lack um, plotted up in that. And Lacanian thought lack is something that only exists because the symbolic exists. Um, uh, in in the real, uh, so the the world exists in a handful of planes, and this this may be just too much of a rabbit hole. It's worth it because he's about to get into. They're about to get into a lot more Lacan, so it's worth just going over a couple terms. Uh, the 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 real which exists and is imperceptible to us because we need to be able to symbolize things to communicate and perceive the re in the real there's no such thing as lack everything is wholly complete uh lack is something that exists only because uh, when we say something's lacking something the assumption is that there's something that could fill that if something's whole there's no lack that's the, the nature of lack as a thing so in Lacanian thought, the idea is, for example, uh, with a woman, she's she feels as though she lacks a penis. Well, at that moment, it's like, okay, but women, that's the females don't have penises. So a, a woman lacks one because we have issues with gender, and there's a whole complexity thing there. That at that moment, that lack exists. We've created the symbolic order. This this only exists there. Uh, so um, when we start moving into the imaginary and these other things, that's when lack becomes real as an, as a, as a possibility. Lack can't exist in the real itself. Um, yeah. The real is beyond characterizations like whole and lacking, but yes. So like characterization, that's my point. That's his point is that characterizations and the symbolic order have to exist first for lack to exist. They come together uh, without characterizations there can't be lack because a thing can't be a partial object it's always just what it is and we're not able to perceive that thing as it truly exists and someone help me out here if i'm if i'm a little bit uh, disorganized in this thought but if i understand correctly brooks to um to expand on that like with the sense of lack and like you're saying the symbolic it looks like at least in your your example of the woman the phallus right so a relationship with something, right? So like the presence of a phallus, for instance, that is created into a relationship of um, one, the phallus appears to get a sort of privilege here um, as a kind of signifier. But uh, with that, so the right, uh, there the absence of a tie necessarily appears as an absence. So in that sense, right, um, there not being a relationship constitutes an, uh, an absence and no longer as a positive force. So it just seems to go back to like the point of like uh, deprivation here, right? So a positive relationship of uh, deprivation as the first syllogism, as opposed to like affirming a, a, a kind of um, nullification through the through the very thing that um, is being related. Yes, I think that's fair. Hopefully that uh, makes but, sense. But I, I believe a lot of this when they when they do the reference of the great other, uh, the ob, the object grande, the big other, as uh, the non-human sex, uh, 
a big reference to that is that there is no lack because there is no penis, therefore no phallus. There's no lack of penis. There's the, the, the great other doesn't ever have a lack. It only sees lack. The law only ever sees lack in me because I've got debt. It's like it's like almost 1 p.m. and it's still too early for this. Um, all right, let's jump on to the next one. Here too, Lacan's approach appears in all its complexity, for it is certain that he does not enclose the unconscious in an Oedipal structure. He shows, on the contrary, that Oedipus is imaginary, nothing but an image, a myth, that this or these images are produced by an Oedipalizing structure, that this structure acts only insofar as it reproduces the element of castration, which itself is not imaginary, but symbolic. There we have the three major planes of structuration, which correspond to the molar aggregates. Oedipus, as the imaginary re-territorialization of private man, produced under the structural conditions of capitalism, inasmuch as capitalism reproduces and revives the archaism of the imperial symbol or the vanished despot. All three are necessary, precisely in order to lead Oedipus to the point of its self-critique. The task undertaken by Lacan is to lead Oedipus to such a point. Likewise, Elizabeth Rundinesco has clearly seen that in Lacan, the hypothesis of an unconscious as language does not closet the unconscious in a linguistic structure, but leads linguistics to the point of its autocritique by showing how the structural organization of signifiers still depends on a despotic great signifier acting as archaism. I don't know if this is of interest, but because they reference both in the um, right there and in, in the uh, previous excerpt from the Accrete that Fritz read, reference note 19, um, it notes that uh, Elizabeth Rudinesso, and it references um, her, and then with regards to Lacan here, it references um, Jean-Jacques Lacan, Accrete's page 821, the way in which Lacan raises the idea of a, quote, signifier of the lack of the symbol, end quote, above the so-called zero symbol taken in its linguistic sense. Which I, so if, if I'm understanding this right, like, so it's like if you, if you take a privileged um, signifier here and explain uh, everything through that signifier, right, should that signifier fall away, then you, it seems to me that at that point you have the autocritique. Is that kind of it in a nutshell? I'm having a very difficult time with this paragraph. Lacan is not my forte, but maybe then we can start with, there we have the main, so quote, there we have the three major planes of structuration which correspond to the molar aggregates. First, Oedipus as the imaginary re-territorialization of private man. Second, produced under the structural conditions of capitalism. And three, inasmuch as capitalism reproduces and revives the archaism of the imperial symbol or the vanished despot. So, right, so like these are the three, what they're calling planes for, um, for structuration to occur. I think to try and dive into them real quick, what I'm getting out of this is like, so Oedipus works as this re-territorialization of private man. So that seems to be like a way of um, re-territorializing a representation. That representation appears to be produced under the structural conditions of capitalism, which seems straightforward enough, right? Like this re-territorialization happens 
under the structure of capitalism. And then three, this is so insofar as capitalism is reproducing and reviving the archaism of the imperial symbol. So right, like with going back to the vanished despot, we have like the, um, I think what they call like the need for the, the resurrection of the Erstat or like the, the need for the, um, with this missing despot, the, um, the problem of overcoding and, and continuing that with capitalism. So in, in the same manner, you know, we do, uh, there's like a little fun poke at Kant that actually destroys a lot of things that Kant did, but it's about the, the representation. So, you know, in perception to perceive an object in Kant, you would need to have a representation of the object prior to, uh, uh, being able to perceive the object so but like if we do a criticism of this assemblage this particular assemblage it needs to go up to another level and to have a representation you would need to have a representation of the representation so it's an endless going up into an assemblage that doesn't make sense you know anymore but that's the same kind of criticism saying that in linguistics um, if you're looking for the signifier uh, the absent signifier, you will you will need to like add a add a layer, and it keeps adding, you know, to like a great signifier, whether it's big God or whatever. But it's it's the same kind of process that if if you wanna if you push a system too far, it collapses on itself because it needs another mode of organization to organize itself. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of I can't remember if it's for Foucault or Derrida, but their point that like. The, the, the chosen signifier here, like the central signifier, the organizing signifier, as, as you're calling it, it has a problem of absence and presence, right? It's at once this kind of present um, organizing signifier, but it, it requires an absence as well, right? And so like you're pointing out, like with that absence, right, the, the correlation kind of collapses, So then language is used uh, to try to fill that absence in the social, constantly signal, uh, presenting the capitalism as um, uh, as what's being signified in, in various languages, constantly pointing back to uh, the, the lack um, or no, it's just pointing back to the fact that uh, capitalism is influencing the language. I mean, this is reminding me of the fact that Lacan eventually came across and, and named a fifth discourse to his original ways of, uh, of you know, the discourse takes place. And then that fifth discourse was the capital discourse. And so I think Rudinesco is pointing in that direction, um, sort of hinting to that this unconscious language is uh, being structured by the big other. Um, the only thing that I can't really account for, uh, maybe you guys can define or elaborate on what the autocritique is and how the autocritique may come about. But I feel like 
right? So the lack is always finding language to put in its place, and yet it's a constant reference to the big other on an unconscious level. Or this, um, this great signifier, the despotic, um, which has been replaced by a machine of capitalism. Well, I, I actually, I'm going to, because I'm, I'm having the same issue you're having, which is what is the autocritique of that? And I'm, I'm going to say that the next paragraph uh, leads us more in that direction. So I'm going to uh, move ahead and we will continue this conversation in a new lens in a second. Uh, what is the point of self-criticism, autocritique? It is the point where the structure, beyond the images that fill it and the symbolic that conditions it within representation, reveals its reverse side as a positive principle of non-consistency that dissolves it, where desire is shifted into the order of production related to its molecular elements, and where it lacks nothing because it is defined as the natural and sensuous object, objective being, at the same time as the real is defined as the objective being of desire. For the unconscious of schizoanalysis is unaware of persons, aggregates, and laws, and of images, structures, and symbols. It is an orphan, just as it is an anarchist and an atheist. It is not an orphan in the sense that the father's name would designate an absence, but in the sense that the unconscious reproduces itself wherever the names of history designate present intensities, the sea of proper names. The unconscious is not figurative, since its figural is abstract, the figure skiz. It is not structural, nor is it symbolic, for its reality is that of the real in its very production, in its very in organization. It is not representative, but solely machinic and productive. Well, it may, may not have helped very much, actually. But the, they're making the decision between the molar and the molecular here. The symbolic would be like into the molar uh, element, but the real is at the level of the molecular, you know, which is not filled with representation, but of real machines, uh, part of it, the assemblage that are producing one another or producing uh, order. That is, so the, the opening, it is the point where the structure beyond the images that fill it and the symbolic that conditions it within representation reveals its reverse side. They're referring here to Lacanian concepts of the imaginary and symbolic orders. Uh, the way Lacan's sort of conception of that works, uh, just to go over real quick, uh, the imaginary is the signs, uh, the symbolic order is the interrelatedness that uh, effectively we all agree on. It's where language uh, comes from, it's where narrative stories come from, the story of our world, that's the symbolic order, how we identify and think the world works. The imaginary is the signs themselves, sort of flow of all of those. Um, so beyond the images that fill it and the symbolic that conditions it, there's a reverse side as a positive principle of non-consistency where, where we know things things don't always make total sense. Uh, the, the, there's a lot of examples of this. Things are feel weird. They aren't quite right. But there is a positive principle of non-consistency that dissolves it where desire is shifted back into the order of production related to its molecular elements, back to that uh, tiny bit, the smallest parts, where it lacks nothing because it is defined as the natural and sensuous objective being, that that pure person. Um, no, uh, so Ken, no, I, 
the Lacan Lacan's real is wholly unknowable. Um, I'm not sure there's ne necessarily a uh, analogous side to anything Deleuze and Guattari talk about. Uh, for uh, him, the, for for Lacan, the 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 real exists as that moment when we realize we can't accurately conceptualize things purely as they actually are, that in order to think or communicate or add signs to things, we naturally leave pieces of everything away. That's the that's the petite object, petite, the partial objects, where we can't conceptually talk about everything perfectly. It's the nature of all of it. Um, and it's deeply a traumatic moment in sort of the early stage of infant, infantile development. Um, Prior to this, but the moment we're born, we're observing things as they are. But the world is an unknowable, terrifying thing at that point because we can't know them in terms of how we know them. Um, terrible existence, basically. So um, to oh, respond to to respond to what Bo just said. Um, the real as non-representational non might, uh, might be a better descriptive as like the delusion virtual. But the real for Deleuze uh, encompasses the virtual and the actual. So it's a little bit larger than that. I think what Bo is trying to say is that um, we could think of the virtual in Deleuzean thought as we think about the real in Lacanian thought. But I don't think that holds very well because I don't think the virtual is unknowable in any sense of the word. So am, am I understanding this correctly with um, the point of self-criticism it's about pushing the structure to a point where we can kind of access the level of molecular production right so like with that we're getting to that kind of flip side which is enabled by self-criticism because if the if the representation or the structuration if that falls away, then we're we're going to have to start dealing with um, things as they're actually being produced, which won't right, which won't lend itself to the um, the structuration as it's under its auto critique, right? So like this is seems critical here because like with an Oedipal representation of the unconscious um, re-territorializing uh, what it comes in contact with uh, relative to capitalism as well. This seems to be what they're trying to uh, overturn here is that with this Oedipal representation and, and that kind of structuration of the unconscious, if that's overturned, like they're talking about here with the auto critique, right? When Oedipus is kind of, um, when it just sort of falls away as a representation and that structure, as Roger was talking about, organizing structure on that despot signifier, when that's just kind of let aside we start digging deeper into and actually being able to see perhaps a little bit more clearly uh, what's ha what's being produced. Yes, I. It's, it's this last sentence of the paragraph that I am getting stuck on. It is not representative, but solely machinic and productive. The idea that uh, the unconscious essentially exists at this point of molecular machines that effectively we're not talking about anything virtual or anything that can be sort of abstracted from it. Uh, 
it's not structural, nor is it symbolic, for its reality is that of the real, and they're, they, that's capital R, they're talking about the Lacanian real, in its very production, in its very inorganization. Uh, yeah. It is not representative, but solely machinic and productive. So we're talking about getting down to the point where the machines are simply operating and trying to find that place where basically it's purely that Latourian nodal A&T structure and not a virtual sort of story that we've layered on top of it. Yes, but still you're talking about the nodals, points, and the relations into A&T. And that's another type of structuration. For example... Well, no, the, what I'm have, saying you know, is like, we want like, to get to the like, point where there is no structuration, where, where it's oh, the pure totally, machine. Totally. The pure, I may the have pure said machine, that wrong. The pure machine, Brooks... Uh, you know, is my boss at my job. Brooks is actually not allowing me to have vacation. Brooks is not the castration factor. Brooks is Brooks, you know? That's that's the real, that's the molar thing. That's the real relation between people. But the, the codification of the of psychoanalysis puts it in, in another term, you know? They, they see the castrated and the castrative. So th this is how they see it, but it's not, this is already into a representation. But in the real, it doesn't function like that. Well, and, and this yeah, exactly. carries across to every part of people's lives. It doesn't necessarily, what they're describing here doesn't necessarily need to be something that is about castration even. We're talking about the point where we say, well, I have pride or, sorry, I have election stuff on my mind. Um, no, I'm here for freedom. I believe in freedom. I, I want freedom. <laughs> like they, these things that are purely symbolic that don't actually, they're not about the direct relations or machinic nature of things. Instead, we're talking about the molar level. They're talking about actually, no, pull back. The unconscious is not figurative, since figural is abstract, the figure skis. It is also not structural, nor is it symbolic. You need to get down to the point where it is solely machinic and productive. That's it. Uh, essentially, the unconscious is only ever productive, period. Right, to, to expand on that using your example of I want freedom, so right, like that's a way of representing a, a certain kind of desire and, and perhaps even assemblages, right? But this is their point, is that I want freedom in, in this representation. Once again, we're, we're kind of gesturing toward like um, sort of that asignifying signifier, signifier, right? That organizing signifier that works through it um, an absence. So like, I think the schizoanalytic point here is like, okay, so you say there's this representation, right? But what are the actual machines that are happening here? What is the connections? Because that in and of itself is the unconscious, right? That is the productive and reproductive unconscious. And that is not to be confused with the representation of it. Um, I'm going to ask a silly question, and I know I want to get further along. But um, if the unconscious is purely productive then that would mean that uh, anti-production only exists at the abstract level? Uh, I don't think so. I think like when they say productive, like remember anti-production they talk about as being produced, Repro the production of reproduction, like those three forms, those three productivities. If you I understand that it's part of production. Like I've, I'm, I'm gathering that I'm talking about the actual, the, the nature of the unconscious, if we want to talk about what it's putting out, uh, it's productive, it's producing, it's purely machinic. It, but it's is it producing what? What is it? How does? How do we figure the out difference. what it's? 
It's, it's producing a difference. It's the same thing. We gave the, the example of pipes with water in it. And that's the same thing that, you know, water is flowing and anti-production, it's a blockage, something that blocks, but it puts the pressure and the intensities elsewhere. So it's producing a difference in the flow. It, it's a pretty, uh, like, uh, uh, image-driven kind of example, but I think it, it helps us to understand this kind of uh, uh, a flow of desire and, you know, castration or anti-production or whatever else. No, I like that. Fair. It's a, these last few are starting to get... I've, I've uh, had stuck in my head uh, very specific readings of Lacan that are my own. And obviously, again, Lacan, you can read a million ways. They're reading another way. And so this is like, I'm feeling my brain getting reorganized as we're talking. So I need Roger to confirm that for me. I, I just wrote in chat uh, that... Uh, the unconscious is basically the process of producing the intensities on the bodies with uh, on the body without organs. Is that a fair way to phrase that? Roger, you still there? Sorry, my roommate just walked in. I missed the question. <laughs> so um, I asked uh, you whether my what I posted in chat that the unconscious is basically the process of the production of the intensities on the body without organs, if, whether that, that's a fair way to phrase that relationship. Yeah, totally. That actually helps um, a lot. Because if we're talking, yes, okay. Interesting. That, that's the thing, because the unconscious, with, it, it belongs to, to the realm of physics. And uh, and when they say the body without organ and its intensities are not metaphors, but matter itself, we're not we're not casting it into the ether. There's no ether into uh, Deleuze and Guattari. It's always at the same plane. It's a form of uh, flat ontology. And everything happens there and everything emerges from that sim that that one singular plane. There's no multiple planes. Yeah, because I think their move is to focus on like the uh, the three syntheses, well, the syntheses themselves here. Oh, actually, Bo brings up a great. Uh, I'm going to read. Uh, Bo Bo quoted Holland, uh, Holland's reading of Antiedipus, to bring productive desire to a halt, to suspend or freeze the connections it has made, in order that new and different connections may become possible. They therefore prefer the term anti-production to death instinct. The effect of anti-production on the connective synthesis, then, is to desexualize desire by neutralizing the organ-machine connections, and thereby constitute a surface that records networks of relations among connections, instead of producing connections themselves. It is this recording surface that Deleuze and Guattari refer to as the body without organs. So, to add that into the connections we've been making, uh, the unconscious essentially is consistently producing. And it's just producing as per the way the machine is organized. Uh, the, it purely, it's purely the way the machine's set up uh, at a physical, material level. Uh, it's just going. There's no abstract, there's no virtual, there's nothing. It's just going. Uh, what it's producing and how it's producing, it's, it's imminence. Thank you, Jack. Um, 
those machines and how they're organized uh, operate over time uh, together. And we see those as sort of as these larger molar aggregates. That's where the abstract, that's where the larger stories come. But ultimately, all of it is being done at this tiny level inside of, uh, on the skin of the body without organs. This recording surface. Is that a okay way to say all that? No? Are we now at a point where things are just naturally too complicated to really, and we should just keep moving forward? I feel like that's where we're at. I think that's about it. It just, again, it's right. It's the unconscious exists with these syntheses because those are where the production happens. Continue moving forward. Destroy, destroy. The task of schizoanalysis goes by way of destruction, a whole scouring of the unconscious, a complete curatage. Destroy Oedipus, the illusion of the ego, the puppet of the superego, guilt, the law, castration. It is not a matter of pious deconstruction, such as those performed by psychoanalysis under the benevolent neutral eye of the analyst. For these are Hegel-style destructions, ways of conserving. How is it that the celebrated neutrality and what psycho psychoanalysis calls, dares to call, the disappearance or the dissolution of the Oedipus complex do not make us burst into laughter? We are told that the Oedipus is indispensable, that it is the source of every possible differentiation, that it saves us from the terrible non-differentiated mother. But this terrible mother, the Sphinx, is herself part of Oedipus. Her non-differentiation is merely the reverse of the exclusive differentiations created by Oedipus. She is herself created by Oedipus. Oedipus necessarily operates in the form of this double impasse. We are told that Oedipus, in its turn, must be overcome, but that this is achieved through castration, latency, desexualization, and sublimation. But what is castration if not still Oedipus, to the nth power, now symbolic and therefore all the more virulent? And what is latency, this pure fable, if not the silence imposed on desiring machines so that Oedipus can develop, be fortified in us, so that it can accumulate its poisonous sperm and gain the time necessary for propagating itself and for passing on to our future children? And what is the elimination of castration anxiety in its turn, desexualization and sublimation, if not divine acceptance of an infinite resignation to bad conscious, which consists for the woman of the appeased wish for a penis destined to be converted into a wish for a baby and for a husband and for the man in assuming his passive attitude and in subjecting himself to a father substitute oh my god we're instagram right now <laughs> yes actually that's and i mean we're talking also about i mean jack's sort of quick thing about saying this is actually about the syntheses, which he's been saying for like three paragraphs. Uh, oh yeah, no, now we're there. <laughs> hey, a little bit more explicit. Um, let's take through a couple of these things. Uh, again, we've finally gotten all the way around. They were very complimentary to Lacan for a little while, which was kind of nice. I like Lacan, but now they're not. <laughs> Now they're now they're back to, hey, by the way, you're still doing all of the same shit. Now you're still working and saying that, yes, we're gonna fight Oedipus. Here's how you do it: you fight Oedipus through Oedipus. Uh, fight fire with fire, which 
doesn't work and it's just going to create more it's a double impasse we're told it must be overcome but it's overcome through working through oedipus that's uh, again to go back to the original point oedipus creates itself and propagates itself through the way it forces us to re-symbolize everything according to its rules yeah in that sense right the point is not to attack oedipus as is the point is to attack oedipus the representation and those other two aspects that make it possible, right? Which is um, the structure of capitalism and some other third thing, which I forgot. Someone help me out here. Oh yes, yes, capitalism reproducing and reviving the archaism of the imperial symbol or the vanished despot. That was the third yes. one. Correct. The, the, the vanished despot, the law, the father, the name of the father, the Lacanian big other. Yeah, and the source of overcoding. Yes. Or the machine of overcoding, rather. And now they're uh, they're in, they're opposing also schizoanalysis with psychoanalysis, in the sense that psychoanalysis seeks a complete destruction uh, of what populates the unconscious as blockage or anti-production, whereas uh, psychoanalysis is a way to code into an ancient form. So basically, you know, it just recasts you, you know, it codes everything that you desire, everything you are to actually like reformat you in a, in a way of not liberating you, but like conserving you into an order. Yeah, and this is why it's critical that Oedipus is re-territorializing this aspect of capitalism, right? Because if Oedipus is possible through capitalism, like Roger is a, a, a kind of gesturing with, right? So that's where we get into the trouble of the decoding and the recoding as opposed to simple overcoding or coding. That's where we've got the problem of deterritorializing and re-territorializing all the capital, all of which is, right, this is an enablement with the representation of Oedipus. The two work together, which is why, to go back to an earlier point, psychoanalysis matters if you're going to take political economy seriously. We are all the more extricated from Oedipus as we become a living example, an advertisement, a theorem in action, so as to attract our children to Oedipus. We have evolved in Oedipus. We have been structured in Oedipus, and under the neutral and benevolent eye of the substitute, we have learned the song of castration, the lack of being that is life. Yes, it is through castration that we gain access to desire. I don't know what that quote is, but I'm sure that's supposed to be a lot more entertaining. Easy. Well, it's the same thing. It's just like, you know, because when, yeah, when, no, we, when we say it in a passionate way like this, you know, it's like it, you, it makes you feel desire. It's, it, it, it's it looks like song lyrics. Exactly. It's a song, or at least it's first, right? I feel like I should be able to sing it, uh, but I have no idea what the tone would be. Um, so to continue, what one calls the disappearance of Oedipus is Oedipus become an idea. Only the idea can inject the venom. Oedipus has to become an idea so that it sprouts each time a new set of arms and legs, lips and mustache. In tracing back the memory deaths, your ego becomes a short, a sort of mineral theorem which constantly proves the futility of living. We have been triangulated in Oedipus. We will triangulate in each in it in turn, from the family to the couple, from the couple to the family. 
In actuality, the benevolent neutrality of the analyst is very limited. It ceases the instant one stops responding daddy-mommy. It ceases the instant one introduces a little desiring machine, the tape recorder, into the analyst's office. It ceases as soon as a flow is made to circulate that does not let itself be stopped by Oedipus, the mark of the triangle. They tell you that you have a libido that is too vicious, viscous, or too liquid, contraindicated for analysis. So this last bit is, I mean, this whole thing is is obviously critique, but uh, they're talking at this point about how the the analyst basically uh, forces you to deal with the way they want to heal you and how they're going to do it. And if Oedipus doesn't work, if you have flows that can't be done. They simply tell you that you're completely out of whack. Your libido is too viscous or too liquid. Con it, we can't do analysis on you. You have too many issues. Mm -hmm. I, 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 sorry, go ahead. So I just wanted to ask, um, like, it, I, it may be a bit of a diversion, but uh, I, I wanted to ask if anyone can summarize how Lacan conceptualizes homosexuality. Because I feel like um, when we get into all these um, actual um, um, I'll come back later to it, I think. I would really, really, really not want to ever talk about Lacan's take on homosexuality. I'm happy to send you to places, but I won't repeat it out loud because I just know. Like, it's... Well, it is problematic, is what someone would fucking say, and they're not wrong. Like, yeah. I, I think he says essentially that homosexuality is a perversion, and he runs with it. And I don't think he means it in the way that it sounds, but it's complicated and kind of shitty. Yeah. yeah so, so I'm, I'm bringing it up because I talked to someone who's listening to our um, podcast and they they mentioned something that I've been thinking about as well. We are kind of reading Anti-Oedipus a bit like um, theory qua theory. And um, the book is really in a real political context, right? It's, it's a part of a larger move against psychoanalysis. And um, the issue of homosexuality in um, psychoanalysis is really at the core of that whole movement. And I think a lot of feminist discourses of the time against um, psychoanalysis also feed into anti-Oedipus. Even if, um, if Deleuze and Guattari do not always make this explicit, like I think their most explicit discussion of homosexuality was in chapter two, then when they talk about um, Freud's three essays on the theory of sexuality. Um, but I think uh, tying this whole thing that they are doing a bit back to the political context in which this book was written might open up a bit more of what they are actually doing there. So you're, are you saying that uh, um, the Deleuze and Guattari here are, in a sense, that, that one of the vectors powered... Um, their language that they would use to describe it is to also disrupt the politics of uh, gender as well, that that could be a function of it. Oh, absolutely. Right. Like, 
Okay. Yeah, that's cool. So it, to, to kind of say one thing about the question, I think, um, you know, from my experience with the, with various Lacanian circles and cohorts and stuff like that, that one thing that I guess they would say is that the, the analyst themselves needs to be able to be double. So they have to be able to um, experience the kind of androgyny that goes along with bisexuality. There's also, I think, the claim that um, that Freud spoke around that the natural state before um, the uh, differentiations occurs is a kind of natural bisexuality. Um, but that is an interesting question, though, around um, later Lacan, because he does one of his later seminars, seminar 20, deals with um, uh, feminine sexuality. So it's a good question, though. Something so to, to, to attempt um, at that, the, the way I read that first sentence, we're all the more so-called extricated from Oedipus as we become a living example, advertisement, a theorem in action. What this seems to me to be getting at is like, for someone who's homo, uh, homosexual, right? So like, if we take the issue of homosexual marriage, uh, at least in the US, right? There's a way that a representation attends that marriage, right? Uh, we talked before about married family, uh, married, ugh, modern family. I got my Ed O'Neill's uh, mixed up there. In Modern Family, there's a gay couple. And throughout the show, there's the sense that one is the wife, one is the husband, right? So this is the kind of familial representation that is um, apropos to psychoanalysis. So I, I, to connect that back with the topic sentence I just read, in that sense, this is another place where like homosexuality itself, as though it is as though it would seem to be acting outside of Oedipus, would it indeed be subject to an, um, an Oedipalizing discourse once again. So to connect it with, um, to, to make like a, a concluding point there, like that problem still seems to be very relevant as, um, and I'm kind of reminded of Foucault's point, like instead of dealing to the shorthand, instead of dealing with representations as, as, um, as expressions of the Oedipal negative or just as expressions of the representation themselves and define ourselves in negation of the representation. Like this seems to get at the point, especially with the political discourse of how to have these discourses, how to have enunciation, how to do these things without relying on the representation to do them for us. Yeah, I want to just make a quick point that castration isn't necessarily related to homosexuality. I know Ken, uh, Ken brought that up and mentioned it. Uh, I mean, it obviously, uh, people who are homosexual uh, or people who have that can experience castration, but it's a secondary thing. It's not like, oh, castration leads to that. Uh, it's it's a thing that can sort of coexist. Uh, again, I really don't want to get into a lot of Lacan's thoughts on it. Uh, Lacan's theory in general, I think, is very friendly and useful uh, for queer theory in general and understanding that. But some of the shit he said was like, very of its time. Uh, I would instead, I would recommend anyone uh, who wants to go down that road, we should probably do a reading of maybe some Judith Butler, who does a lot of really interesting critique on uh, Lacan. 
uh, and in specifically this realm that I think could be really useful to sort of talk about. Um, yeah. Muskie, who stole what from what? Did I steal a take from Zizek? I just read an article Zizek did about how um, psychoanalysis is useful for queer activism. <laughs> I, I, I've always, that's, that's, I mean, he's not wrong. Um, it's, Lacan is, uh, I actually got that from, uh, he may have gotten the same thing. It's a Judith Butler line that the, the reality of Lacan is that he's uh, good ammunition or techniques, but don't necessarily believe everything he wrote is kind of a mentality she has around a lot of stuff he, he's written. Mm -hmm. uh, once Marie, Marie Rudy is amazing. If, if you want, actually, my favorite Lacanian sort of ongoing who's contemporary, Marie Rudy is wonderful. Mm -hmm. But to return to like Deleuze and Glattery's point, like this is why psychoanalysis matters, right? Is it's caught up in political economy and capitalism. So the, the, the representations there, the discourses, they do matter. I think the move too to that I've noticed in feminist theory, the return to Freud within uh, feminist theory itself is a kind of attempt at re-territorialization or deterritorialization, whichever it may be. But uh, it is an interesting move, and again, it it is under the influence of capital. Well, and so the to get back to the text, this entire uh, critique, they're now making that move into Lacanian psychoanalysis and kind of at their time contemporary sort of directions in psychoanalysis saying, hey, actually, the problem is you've now got the analyst and the analyst uh, has X number of tools. And again, like we talked about earlier in the section, and they've made this point again and again uh, to that person with a hammer. Uh, everything looks like a nail. To the analyst with classic psychoanalytic training, everything looks like Oedipus. And anything that isn't, they simply go, oh, well, it's untreatable, uh, which is asinine and very shitty to do to people. Um, but I'm going to continue because the next paragraph continues this uh, pretty handily. But, but but before we go further, you know, we they say we have evolved in Oedipus. We have been structured in Oedipus. And under the neural, neutral and benevolent eye of the substitute, we have learned the song of castration, the lack of being that is life. So it, it's saying also that the, 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 the way we are being produced is, you know, by, by Oedipus. So like there's, we, we're going to be reproducing this in our lives, like, uh, and then there, there's two ways. Either you're being corrected to encounter Oedipus correctly, or in their alternative, and they'll probably say it later, you, we can unleash and we can get out of Oedipus. So that's something that is, uh, because it, 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 uh, it refers to the diagram that produces us. Well, and I think, I don't know, the, the idea... Um... It feels resonant to me, the idea that we teach people that uh, in order to desire things or to want stuff, you have to start with lack. And so, oh, the, the reason you feel such a deep lack uh, is because that's the way life is, which is <laughs> terrible. Yeah, just to give one quick thought there to expand on Roger and your point, they, they write, when one calls the dearest disappearance of Oedipus, what one calls the disappearance of Oedipus is Oedipus become an idea. Only the idea can inject the venom. Right? So like they're really careful about how to deal with Oedipus here as more than as uh, rather 
um, so that we're not just simply negating it and treating it as though it's an ideal in, in a philosophical sense, right? As though it's a mental thing, as though it's a signified thing. Like this is really critical for how to deal with this, um, this psychoanalytic discourse and that, and especially with the way that that discourse will respond to how you deal with it. All right, I'm going to continue uh, on. Uh, and if you're missing it in the ch in the chat, it's it is one of the best gifts that exists on the planet. Um, to continue, when Fromm denounces the existence of a psychoanalytic bureaucracy, he still doesn't go far enough because he doesn't see what the stamp of this bureaucracy is, and that an appeal to the pre-Oedipal is not enough to escape the stamp. The pre-Oedipal, like the post-Oedipal is still a way of bringing all of desiring production, the anedipal, back to Oedipus. When Reich denounces the way in which psychoanalysis joins forces with social repression, he still doesn't go far enough because he doesn't see that the tie linking psychoanalysis with capitalism is not merely ideological, that it is infinitely closer, infinitely tighter, that the psychoanalysis depends directly on an economic mechanism whence its relations with money, through which the decoded flows of desire, as taken up in the axiomatic of capitalism, must necessarily be reduced to a familial field where the application of this axiomatic is carried out. Oedipus, as the last word of capitalist consumption, sucking away at daddy mommy, being blocked and triangulated on the couch, so its psychoanalysis is no less the bureaucratic or military apparatus is a mechanism for the absorption of surplus value, nor is this true from the outside extrinsically. Rather, its very form and its finality are marked by this social function. It is not the pervert, nor even the autistic person who escapes psychoanalysis. The whole of psychoanalysis is an immense perversion, a drug, a radical break with reality, starting with the reality of desire. It is narcissism, a monstrous autism, the characteristic autism and the intrinsic perversion of the machine of capital. At its most autistic, psychoanalysis is no longer measured against any reality. It, is no long, it no longer opens to any outside, but becomes itself the test of reality and the guarantor of its own test. Reality as the lack to which the inside and the outside, departure and arrival, are reduced. Psychoanalysis, index sui, with no other reference than itself or the analytic situation. So yeah, um, psychoanalysis casts a story. That's it. <laughs> it's a story, you know. It's a it's a and story people, that propagates itself. And people pay for it. Because and... it's like it's like, you know, we can give like, you know, really like worldly examples. It's like we live in the car within in the world of automobile, you know, we're stuck with the car. The car defines where we go, what we can do. And then, you know, we need to invest into the car and well, not invest, but like we need to spend money on the car because the car is never an investment. It's like a, something that keeps degrading. So we go to the garage, get it fixed so we can actually partake in a society that actually takes our mobility from us and puts it into the car. So like psychoanalysis functions like this. It has a function within capitalism to actually fix you, to make you function in the pervasive way um, that you're trying to fill a bottomless hole you know this is this is what it is yeah it's this um 
I don't want to use the term sublimation, but it it's the repression of desire, right? Through desire itself. It's a racket. That's absolutely it. Now that we know that it works like that, let's open a clinic and make a shit ton of money. Paging Dr. Roger Normandon. Paging Roger, Dr. Roger Normandon. <laughs> we have a patient here for you to normandinalize. Yeah, but it's, I think this, this paragraph is really great into uh, the political move that they're moving because the, in the way that they identify psychoanalysis and its function in society, it, 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 it shows the politics of Deleuze and Guattari. You know, they never really show it up front, but I think in that one, you can feel, you know, the anger into the way they describe things. Yeah, I like the fact that they're saying this is not a problem of ideology, right? Because once again, that's to take it back into the idea, into the ideal, the mental, the representation, the despot signifier, right? And I'm going to move on to the next paragraph. Psychoanalysis states clearly that unconscious representation can never be apprehended independently of the deformations, disguises, or displacements it undergoes. Unconscious representation therefore comprises essentially, by virtue of its own law, a represented that is displaced in relation to an agency in a constant state of displacement. But from this, two unwarranted conclusions are drawn. That this agency can be discovered by way of the displaced represented, and this precisely because this agency itself belongs to representation as a non-represented representative, or as a lack that juts out into the overfull of representation. This results from the fact that displacement refers to very different movements. At times, the movement through which desiring production is continually overcoming the limit, becoming deterritorialized, causing its flows to escape, going beyond the threshold of representation. At times, on the contrary, the movement through which the limit itself is displaced and now passes to the interior of the representation that performs the artificial re-territorializations of desire. If the displacing agency can be concluded from the displaced, this is only true in the second sense, where a molar representation is organized around a representative that displaces the represented. But this is certainly not true in the first sense, where the molecular elements are continually passing through the links in the chain. We have seen in this perspective how the law of representation perverted the productive forces of the unconscious and induced in its very structure a false image that caught desire in its trap, the impossibility of concluding from the prohibition as to what is actually prohibited. Yes, Oedipus is indeed the displaced represented. Yes, castration is indeed the representative, the displacing agency, the signifier. But none of that constitutes an unconscious material, nor does any of it concern the productions of the unconscious. Oedipus, castrations, the signifier, etc., exist at the crossroads of two operations of capture, one where repressive social production becomes replaced by beliefs, the other where repressed desiring production finds itself replaced by representations. To be sure, it is not psychoanalysis that makes us believe. Oedipus and castration are demanded then demanded again, and these demands come from elsewhere and from deeper down. But psychoanalysis did find the following means and fills the following function. 
causing beliefs to survive even after repudiation, causing those who no longer believe in anything to continue believing, reconstituting a private territory for them, a private urstat, a private capital. Dreams as capitals, said Freud. I really like that. Like, nihilism isn't even our problem here, right? <laughs> no, this is a great, very harsh breakdown of what they've, again, been saying quite a bit, that a lot of this is a story. We've built this story. We have all of these things going. And it's not that these things don't exist at some representational, represented level. They do, absolutely. But the conclusion you draw from them is this uh, unmaterial, immaterial unconscious that operates according to the rules of these things. And that's insane. There's this whole other thing going on at the molecular level. Really would have loved to have just, like, I wish someone had asked Lacan, because I know, you know, he read this, like the dude's about as narcissistic as it got for all of that. You know, he read this and I would have loved to have just, I don't know, like Derrida being asked, like, it's like Derrida being asked about Seinfeld. It would have been at least interesting to watch. You would have said that he probably desire his cock, you know, something like that. But well, it's, yeah. what's what's interesting is the two operations of capture because you know when they say capture it's because it's linked to a dispositive uh, apparatus, so it's a machine that produces. So psychoanalysis is you know a, a machine that produces the real into inferring the anti-production of the lack. So we can we can have a definition like this, you know. We it leads to a definition of the the machinic uh, psychoanalysis. Yeah, and in that way, it doesn't take us toward nihilism or like the like a nothingness, right? Instead, it keeps us very much in a representation, still believing, right? Yes, because so it's, it's it's a factory, you know. It's seen as a factory. This positive is like a factory. Yeah, and it's a, a stark contrast, right? So like Nietzsche is often characterized as responding to nihilism or anticipating it, right? Like, this is kind of the inverse of that problem. <laughs> yeah, because it denaturalize de de psychoanalysis, because that's what they said earlier. Psychoanalysis puts, puts itself as a science and puts out a neutral story. But what they're saying is that it's not that neutral. It, it creates something. It has intent, and, you know, it's a, it has certain mechanism that cannot produce anything else that what it serves as a function. Yeah, and, it's, and that is structured and, and reproducing with um, respect to capitalism itself, right? The psychoanalysis does not exist in null of capitalism. Well, it's one of the lines Holland says here, um, it finally is coming into clarity for me. Uh, the uh, his line: We cannot deduce the nature of desire from the content of conscious prohibitions against it or representations of it. Uh, the the idea that the desire is a thing that basically is uh, creating connections, running around doing its thing. But our ability to go, well, here is the representations of everything. Therefore, we can deduce how the unconscious works is not how it goes. That's not how it goes at all. Yeah, because that brings to mind for me that last phrase, reconstituting a private territory for them, a private erstat, a private capital. Dreams is capital, said Freud. Right, so all this stuff 
uh, taken as capital as, as private earth status, private capital, right? Like this leads us back into problems of a private decoding, a private deterritorializing, and even a private overcoding, right? Because even with with capitalism, you don't just have the problem of capital, you have the problem of the earth stats still. So you've got overcoding there. Well, it's, it's, so again, to quote Holland on that one specifically, you can believe you are guilty of wanting to kill your father and sleep with your mother. You can believe in Oedipus, but you can also believe you are guilty of not working hard enough, owing too much money, overindulging yourself. You can believe in the superiority of your religion, nation, or sports team. And all of these beliefs are paranoid molar investments, which contravene the molecular investments of desiring production. Psychoanalysis did not invent Oedipus, as we have seen, but in circumstances where widespread decoding undermines its means of reproduction in the nuclear family, psychoanalysis nevertheless, quote, fills the following function, causing beliefs to survive even after repudiation, causing those who no longer believe in anything to continue believing. Uh, we're speaking right now about what's happening in America. <laughs> I love it. Um, it's just great. It's, it's really good stuff. Um, I really, really am enjoying these paragraphs. Finally, a lot of this stuff, I, I don't think I've ever grasped before literally reading it today. So this is great. Is everyone else doing okay so far? Are we good? So far I am. And this is, this is more of the style of a thousand plateau too. This is, you know, this is, this is clearer. And uh, I think, you know, that's, that's, that's the key to understanding how, um, they're positioning themselves. There's a lot of there's a lot of text in Deleuze and Guattari which you don't get if you don't have the conclusion first. But I think that we're we're reaching that point right now. Moving on. That is why, inversely, schizoanalysis must devote itself with all its strength to the necessary destructions, destroying beliefs and representations, theatrical scenes. And when engaged in this task, no activity will be too malevolent, <laughs> causing Oedipus and castration to explode, brutally intervening each time the subject strikes up the song of myth or intones tragic lines, carrying him back to the factory. As Charlotte says, a lot we care about your grandmother, you little shit. Oedipus and castration are no more than reactional formations, resistances, blockages, and armorings whose destruction cannot come fast enough. Reich intuits a fundamental principle of schizoanalysis when he says the destruction of resistances must not wait upon the discovery of the material. But the reason for this is even more radical than he thought. There is no unconscious material, so that schizoanalysis has nothing to interpret. There are only resistances, and then machines, desiring machines. Oedipus is a resistance. If we have been able to speak of the intrinsically perverted nature of psychoanalysis, this is due to the fact that perversion in general is the artificial re-territorialization of the flows of desire, whose machines, on the contrary, are indices of deterritorialized production. The psychoanalyst re-territorializes on the couch in the representation of Oedipus and castration. Schizoanalysis, on the contrary, must disengage the deterritorialized flows of desire and the molecular elements of desiring production. We should again call to mind the practical rule laid down by Leclerc following Lacan, the rule of the right to nonsense as well as to the absence of a link. 
you will not have reached the ultimate and irreducible terms of the unconscious so long as you find or restore a link between two elements. But how then can one see in this extreme dispersion machines dispersed in every machine, nothing more than a pure fiction that must give way to reality to find his lack with Oedipus and castration back at the gallop, at the same time that one reduces the absence of a link to a signifier of absence, charged with representing the absence, with linking this absence itself, and with moving us back and forth from one pole of displacement to the other. One falls back into the molar hole while claiming to unmask the real. That's the grand narratives. This is like post, post, postmodernism shit. As the grand narratives uh, play within us, this is how I'm reading this paragraph. The grand narratives that we're trying to take down, we're using the tools of the grand narratives to take it down, therefore reinforcing the grand narratives. Yeah, so we're doing a complete Hegelian move of like creating antithesis that you know that uh, re respond to a thesis and which we're just being recasting a synthesis all toward the absolute right or towards nowhere <laughs> the absolute nowhere Shh, that's the great hegelian secret but what's interesting here is you know uh i swear i swear to you people that i did not read forward but they're referring to the factory again you know it, they're saying the same thing that i was trying to explain before and i the, the more they go the clearer it becomes you know so what do you guys make of this point about reich where they uh, they write reich intuits a fundamental principle of schizoanalysis when he says that the destruction of resistance must not wait upon the discovery of the material but the reason for this is even more radical than he, Reich, thought. There is no unconscious material, so that schizoanalysis has nothing to interpret. There are only resistances and then machines, desiring machines. A lot of that has to do... So they, they mentioned uh, Leclerc uh, against Lacan here, which I think is... Uh, it's a whole other discussion, but one of Leclerc's uh, big books that I really loved was... Um, a child being killed. Uh, it sounds worse than it is. Uh, essentially, uh, Leclerc takes the concept of uh, the the big other that is instilled on us uh, by our parents or the Oedipalization of us and says that our primary goal of life should essentially be to uh, find the image that was instilled of who we are, who Brooks is, who my parents told me Brooks needs to be. And murder that child over and over and over um find that image kill it a new image will be born do it again uh basically our job is to kill that which our parents said we are um really hardcore uh it's a really a darker book but a really solid sort of i don't know it's in, it was interesting to read it just uh, they, they them bringing up leclerc here um the, the idea of having the right to nonsense and a, and a bunch of things because Leclerc's one of their one of Leclerc's big pushes was uh, signifying nonsense, which is not a thing that had signifiers prior to him. It was an, it's a lot of really interesting shit. But again, the it's hard to argue with the Deleuze and Guattari saying here that you're still utilizing those same tools in order to destroy the thing. You're fighting fire with fire, which doesn't work. It just creates more fire. That's what they're saying. I like these paragraphs a lot. Um, does anyone have specific questions about any part of this or comments on them? Please, anyone. 
uh, everyone here is welcome to comment or question uh, because we're coming up upon two o'clock and I do not think we'll make it through the rest of the section today. And there's no dumb question. And, you know, everybody has to start somewhere. So everything is fine. If you have a question, you know, we'll try yeah. to answer it collectively. Yeah, that's, uh, I have a question about the last line moving, you know, um, and I may miss if you guys were going over because I was chatting away, but did that last line, one falls back into the molar hole while claiming to unmask the real. What does that mean? The, um, the the molar hole the molar is the master discourse and it trying to unmask the real you're just reproducing the discursive element of the molar because when you say you have access to the real uh you're not really having access to it you're just you're you're you just uh risk of like reproducing a structuration of the real because the real escapes sense and representation you know the real is just out there if you put the narrative on it, you're just going back into the master um, narrative. If we want to think about um, the the way that Adams, let, here's an here's an analogy for it. The the way that Brooks exists is kind of on two levels. I exist as this person who walks around, thinks, fuck shits, eats, all that fun stuff. Uh, my, the atoms of my body do not care about any of those things. The atoms of my body are continuing to be the things they're being. At no point would you say that that atom is Brooks. Uh, the, the atoms are just doing the stuff that they're doing. Uh, however, what Brooks is, that, that story of what I am, uh, that that's the molar aggregate of that. And so when we're talking about the investments of me at a large scale uh, or the investments of society, the desiring machines of Brooks operate not drastically different than that. They're producing, they're doing things, they're, they're making their movements, but we have these large scale investments where the desire goes, uh, especially in capital, especially in capitalism. And these large scale sort of aggregates and investments um, are stories and narratives and myths and legends. And uh, they went through a few of those earlier. But one of the big ones, obviously, this whole time is the idea of Oedipus, this, this triangulation of how all of this works to be. Uh, and the story of basically how we operate. Their comment here is that um, with Leclerc, uh, they said, oh, actually, we want to have the right to nonsense. And if we can have the absence of a link, that actually shatters uh, this larger story. And they're like, it does. However, that entire conception and everything you're talking about there only operates if we think that everything is built on Oedipus. So at that point, you've fallen back into this paranoid belief that you have knowledge. Uh, the thing they say just before, the, the paranoid molar hole. They use that term a lot because uh, the sort of structure around paranoia is that uh, you believe you know or that everything is knowable. And we can only do that really on the molar level. And so this molar paranoid hole, well, we claim we're unmasking the real and we're at this minute level, like we're gonna get at the actual stuff of what it is. We're actually stuck still in that large scale molar investment. That's how I how I read it, Jack. Just to expand very briefly on that point. So right with the representation, you have the point of departure and arrival as they're talking about it, right? It's like the pre-Oedipal, the Oedipal, and the post-Oedipal, right? All organized around the index of the Oedipus. 
so that's why I think they're to, to expand on Brooks' point, like with that point about absence falling into this like recursive absence and like a, a strange form of regression, right? So like if you're if you're looking for the representation to be the way out of the representation, right? You see how you're you're looking for the absence um, in a presence of which is already an absence, and so you see the, the how it kind of like falls in on itself. I actually have a really good fairly poetic example of it. Uh, Bruno Latour, uh, one of his best sort of writings uh, that I uh, I think is he spent a lot of time in a in a science lab and talked about how the the scientists and the process actually isn't this weird objective perfectly scientific thing and actually that people are flawed systems are flawed things are set up and in response because this is Latour coming out and saying look this is science is is great like he loves science. He's he's not shitting on it, but he's like he he kind of shits on uh, scientism. Uh, he calls it the the cult of the factish gods, which is probably my favorite title he, uh, he came up with. Um, but in response, scientists came out and said, "Look, we did a number of studies and we confirmed that our system works." And it's like, oh yeah, you're literally. Like, dude, do you not get it? Like, there's almost like this weird, uh, the, the term now is like self-aware wolves, where they're almost there. Like, yes, of course your study said that you were right. Mm? Like, it's this, come on, guys. And it's kind of that thing that that's, that's what they're saying here is like, look, you're trying this apart. That's great. Have you, you're breaking it apart with the system. Mm? And it's like, yeah, no, that's what, that's what you're doing. Oedipus is still there. And you're actually just strengthening it. Oedipus has that power. Um, it's a uh, yeah. That's why the auto critique is important because in Brooks's story, that's exactly what what the scientists didn't take hold of, right? The auto critique, because the auto critique, right? If so, like instead of instead of facing the critique with the very representation itself that's being critiqued, the auto critique would make that mi a mighty harder. And Ken, for me, I think their escape of the critique is they're not, uh, I, we're not there yet, but I don't believe they proposed uh, any semblance of a cohesive system. Instead, their system is about process. So, I mean, this is a larger discussion to have, but I actually think that their their system sidesteps a lot of things by saying, fuck systems, let's, let's instead focus on becoming. That's just my thoughts. There's a lot there. That's, I mean, there's, this is not an easy answer for anything you fucking ask. Your questions are always difficult. <laughs> but that was the, you know, when we're trying to be delusion into any way, uh, writing a dissertation or something like this and trying to be processual in the way we understand being or becoming, um, we need to get rid of this, you know, structural analysis that we've been taught in school and in universities and it's it's really difficult but at the same time if we move if we're able to move and have the correct language to describe those processes uh, it becomes possible to show reality in a complete different manner not where you know for example i'm working on disability so i'm not talking about ableism all the time i'm talking about real people doing real stuff so it's a it's a real it's a you know how machines are producing you know how people are doing things through the city and the cities doing them and 
So, so you have a complete different form of analysis than the normal analysis on the left saying, you know, everybody's castrated, you know, there's a police state, there's this, there's that. It, you see it in a different manner. So it's, it, it challenges a lot of the way that we tend to see uh, reality, both into the, into the institution, but also into what um, stands as a criticism of institution. So we move into a complete different kind of criticism. That's very wonderfully said. To, to attach a quote to that, uh, there is no unconscious material, so that schizoanalysis has nothing to interpret. There are only resistances and then machines desiring machines. Oedipus is a resistance. So, right, like, to Roger's point, like, the reason schizoanalysis is not an interpretation is because schizoanalysis isn't starting with a schema by which to understand everything. And I think that's the major point of differentiation here. I've said this before, instead of beginning with the answer and trying to explain how everything leads to that answer, or as they say, the point of departure and the point of arrival, or like uh, with Roger's example, instead of beginning with ableism, we're looking instead at desiring production, what is there, and the resistances that are there and that are being encountered. So in that way, it's also very affirmative. Mm -hmm. I think that's really the key to understanding uh, the thought of Deleuze and Guattari in this. And it's, that's the way that analysis must go. Start from the real, end up with the conclusion. Never do the reverse. Yeah, we don't have to start with it's not Oedipus. But if someone wants to say it's Oedipus, show us where it is, man. <laughs> And I would say they also, one of the big things as we get going, because there's a lot of negative language around a few things, and I mean, Holland even explicitly calls it out, at, at no point are molar formations or investment bad. They're talking about the use of them and the process. The reality is we will always have formations and narratives. We have to talk about things with other people. That's how people work. That's how society works. We have to talk. We have to have stories and narratives in order to function. Uh, that's, that's the way it goes. Uh, so we'll never be able to escape molar formations, nor should we really be trying. Uh, what is desirable to just quote, as suggested in chapter one, is that molar investments express to the greatest extent possible the movement and dynamic of molar unconsciousness. Yeah. And the political struggle in the same way uh, that the left is talking about hegemony would be to say that the molecular needs to intensify enough to become the molar. So the, the becoming stops becoming and starts being as the reference. So that's the political process into uh, Deleuze. So, and, you know, the molecular is like opening new trenches, but at the same time, you need to actually format this to uh, change society and change the current molar and to replace it by another. Yeah, and to add on a, a final thought there, at least for me, um, it's the difference between meta-storytelling and storytelling in a sense, right? So, like, we can still tell stories, we can do this, these kind of things. But I think where their main critique lies is when that story becomes like Oedipus. They point out earlier, like, the point is not to replace Oedipus with the story of Hamlet, right? So that, that we go from being Oedipalized to Hamletized. Yeah, like, and I think this is one of the reasons I'm interested in what they have to do with Kafka and Proust for this reason, too. Because, like, 
there is a place for for the literary and like even like what Sophocles wrote. It's just when that becomes this kind of meta narrative and the representation goes out of control in this man, excuse me, in this manner of what we're calling a meta narrative, right? And that becomes the like what they're saying, like the the despot signifier, the deterritorializing and the reterritorializing, yeah. Like that is where we seem to get into a major amount of trouble. And I think with that, we are going to close out today. I think there's a chance tomorrow we'll actually be able to trudge pretty quickly through a lot of the rest of this. Uh, the rest of this section in my short skimming of it uh, yesterday and a little bit this morning, uh, I think we'll be able to get through kind of on a nice clip. We'll find out. But for now, uh, thank all of you for joining us very much. Uh, I'm going to close out the recording and uh, join us tomorrow, same time, same place.